While we remain standing, it is my pleasure to invite Pastor Jeff Shaw to come to the front here and take the pulpit. As you know, and as Mr. Douglas mentioned during the announcements, Pastor Shaw is here candidating for the position uh, that we have on the pastoral staff. And this really is for me to give him enough time to walk here from the back of the church, where the only place was he could find space to... Great to see you, my friend. Thank you. Please take the pulpit. Um, I'm going to leave you to lead us in prayer and to preach. But just to say thank you for coming. Your family's here. Uh, this is part of our discernment process and part of theirs as we try to work out what will be the wisest and best course of action for us as a church seeking a new pastor and for the Shaw family as they're seeking a pastoral call for Mr. Shaw, Pastor Shaw. And so thank you for bringing the Word of God to us. Yeah. Uh, let us pray before we come to the Word of God. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that at many times and in various ways, you spoke by the prophets and you spoke of the coming of Jesus. And we thank you that we live in these last days in which Jesus has come. We thank you that he is the radiance of you, the exact representation of who you are. And so we thank you that we have his testimony laid up for us through his apostles. Father, we pray that you would feed us by your word this morning as we meditate upon it and that you would fortify us for the good works that you have prepared in advance for us to walk in. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Our scripture meditation this morning is Matthew chapter 2. I'll be reading the entire chapter. Christmas is still two weeks away. But this morning we're going to consider a passage that details some events that took place immediately following the birth of Christ. And that, I realize that may make this more suitable for Advent or Christ, uh, um, sorry, Christmas or Epiphany, but this passage does address some anticipations regarding the coming of the Messiah, in particular where he would come from and out of. It's also the familiar passage of the Magi seeking the Christ child, but this morning I'd like you to pay special attention to the towns, the places that are mentioned here, all the while asking yourself, why does Matthew detail where Jesus comes from? Matthew chapter 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it's written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them, until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh, and being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, 
Take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Well, as I'm sure you can appreciate, I have been tracking your services online for a few weeks now, and a while back, I remember seeing the announcement that Gene Capone made regarding my visit today. Uh, I think he enjoyed a good laugh over my name. It is indeed Jeff. Uh, Jeff Stephen. Um, It is Jeffrey Stephen Shaw, so at least we have different last names. Um, Weirdly, I have the English spelling of the name Jeffrey, while Pastor Jeffrey has the Americanized version of that, so go figure. But anyway, I I couldn't help but notice that during that announcement, uh, Gene also added he's from California which I think has been repeated on more than one occasion. And uh, for me, that was a bit of a cringeworthy moment uh, because I know what people think of California today. Can anything good come out of there? (laughs) Texas probably doesn't need more Californians, but I was encouraged uh, on Wednesday night to meet a number of you who said your roots were from California as well. Well, it's true, I am coming to you from California. If the Lord does see fit to add me to your pastoral staff, I hope that I will not be known as Pastor Jeff from California. Um, But truth be told, I am not really a Californian. My my wife and children are all natives. Um, But when people ask me where I'm from, in all honesty, I have a little difficult time nailing that down. I was born in Pennsylvania, but I hardly think that defines me, not a Yankee. Uh, because when I was just a year old, my parents moved us to Nashville, Tennessee. I have very fond memories of growing up in the South, in Nashville, playing in that neighborhood, catching lightning bugs at night, being able to walk to my elementary school. Of course, I remember fondly the church that my father pastored. But when I was about 10 years old, my parents moved us to Denver, Colorado, and I spent 5th grade through 10th grade in Denver, And then uh, my parents relocated us once again, but not so far away, down the road to Colorado Springs, where I finished high school. When high school was over, I I just figured I'd stay close to home, maybe go down the road to the community college and take some classes there. But I remember that my parents said, no, you know, we think that you ought to find a school out of state. 
make of that what you will, but uh, they encouraged me to look for, a, a, uh, for a, a Christian college, and so I settled on Calvin College, and of all places, Grand Rapids, Michigan. Had a great time at college, but let me tell you, Michigan is no Colorado, right? It's gray, it's dreary, it's cold, and that's saying something coming from Colorado. But it did feel a bit like a foreign country. Well, the moving for me did not stop after college. It only ramped up even more. I'll give you the rundown in short order to keep this short, but I came back from, from uh, Michigan to Colorado after graduating, and then uh, just spent a year there, and then I moved to the suburbs of Chicago to be close to my sister. And then I moved to Atlanta, where I gained a job that was meaningful and uh, was there for four years, and then moved on to seminary. I felt called to go to seminary, so I enrolled at Covenant Seminary in St. Louis. And then I was out here for a year, or out this way. I was in Dallas, serving at Park City's Presbyterian Church as an intern there. And then finally out to California, where I've spent the last 20 or so years and really maybe settled down, you might say. Even though I've been in California for over 20 years, I've lived in a few places there. Santa Barbara, where I did ministry before I got married, before I met my wife. Then we met at a church in the San Fernando Valley, and then I assumed a pastorate south of the airport, where I served as a solo pastor. And uh, most recently lived in Pasadena for the last eight years or so. Of course, now, Brianne and I and the kids were contemplating the possibility of moving to Texas in the near future should God so desire. You know, I, I run this down because we like to think that knowing where someone is from communicates something essential about that person. I don't know if telling you where I'm from tells you much about me, but does knowing where Jesus comes from tell us something essential about him? I think it does, because Matthew has gone to some length to tell us where Jesus is from. He relates that he was born in Bethlehem, he spent his early childhood, his infancy in Egypt of all places, and then he grew up and he came out of Nazareth. Is all of that just practical information? You know, this happened and this happened and this happened and those circumstances dictated his whereabouts. I don't think so. In fact, we know that that's not the case because we see a common refrain employed multiple times in this chapter, for so it's written by the prophet, or this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Jesus comes from these places in order to show that he is the long-awaited Messiah spoken of by prophets. Prophecy is very significant in determining where Jesus will come from. But not only prophecy, I truly believe that the actual places that, that were mentioned here say something about the nature and purposes of the Christ. Bethlehem, Egypt, and Nazareth, they tell us something about our Lord. What does Bethlehem tell us? Well, it reminds us of David, doesn't it? And it speaks to us to the fact that Jesus is indeed a king. When the wise men came to Jerusalem, they asked almost matter-of-factly, where is he who's born king of the Jews? How interesting, how wonderful, by the way, that God had condescended to these magi, the magi from Persia or Babylonia, wherever it was, and he used a star to guide them to Jerusalem in seeking the Messiah. But the scribes and the Pharisees who have the benefit of the scriptures, they reply, well, he's to be born in Bethlehem of Judea. Because Micah 5.2 says, you Bethlehem in the land of Judah. It says actually Bethlehem Ephrathah, but there are two Bethlehems, and so it's distinguishing the Bethlehem of the south. You Bethlehem in the land of Judah are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for 
From you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Bethlehem, Judah, ruler, shepherd, those terms, they all bring to mind David. David, of course, was from Bethlehem in the land of Judah. And during the reign of Saul, God, through Samuel, anointed David to be ruler over Israel. And indeed, David's occupation before becoming a king was a shepherd. So Bethlehem, ruler, shepherd, they all bring to mind David. Of course, once David was seated on the throne in Jerusalem, God also made a gracious and glorious sovereign promise to him that he would raise up from his house one of his offspring, someone who would sit on his throne forever. And Matthew, in his introduction in chapter 1, he's made a real effort to present Jesus as the descendant of David. Jesus is the son of David. Jesus is indeed the king that was born to sit on the throne of David forever. Okay, well, if Bethlehem reminds us of David, then what does Egypt call to mind? Well, certainly there's a sense in which going down into Egypt and then coming up out of there calls, us to, calls to mind, first of all, Israel. Hence the reference to Hosea 11. When Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt, I called my son. Jesus is indeed uh, presented to us as the faithful embodiment of his people. Wherever they failed, Jesus will succeed. But I do think that more specifically, at least as it relates to one person in particular, this calls to mind Moses. Consider, for instance, that Jesus was preserved from Herod in much the same way as Moses was preserved from Pharaoh. In both cases, there were these paranoid rulers who were threatened um, by someone else ascending to the throne, and so they sought to murder newborn babies. It's just tragic. Such a epitome of evil. However, in each case, they were deceived, and a special child was hidden from them. Interestingly enough, because the account is already called to mind David through the reference of Bethlehem, Herod not only reflects Pharaoh, but also, I think, King Saul as well. Remember that Saul had gone to great lengths to eliminate David. He had all the priests of Nob slaughtered in his search for David. And how ironic that this murderous madman seeking to stamp out a deliverer is the governor of Israel now and not Egypt. In fact, this is really an exodus out of Israel and into Egypt for safe, safekeeping, isn't it? But in any case, Egypt calls to mind Moses. Not only is there a similar account of being preserved from a murderous tyrant, but Matthew in his gospel, he's now going to proceed to show us that Jesus is the new Moses. He's going to pass through the waters of baptism, a reference to the Red Sea. He's going to travel out into the desert for a time of testing, right? Reference to the wilderness wanderings for Israel. And then he'll ascend a mountain where he will deliver the law. I think it calls to mind the delivering of the law at Mount Sinai. So I think Matthew means for us to see in the reference to Egypt that Jesus is also a great deliverer. A savior of God's people along the line of Moses. After all, Moses built that anticipation by saying that after him would come someone that God would raise up like him from among his brothers, another prophet. And that when that prophet appeared, they should listen to him. So by pointing out that Jesus was from Bethlehem, a la David, Matthew asserts that the child, this child is the Christ. And by pointing out that he came out of Egypt, a la Moses, 
Matthew shows us that the child is a savior for his people. Indeed, he was named that, right? Yeshua, Joshua, Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. This child is therefore a savior who's also a king. In a name, he is Jesus the Christ. All right, so that's a fairly full picture. So then what of Nazareth? What might that add to the picture of our Lord? You know, this is where Matthew does something a little unexpected. Regarding Bethlehem, Matthew had said, for so it's written by the prophet, and he had quoted Micah 5. Regarding Egypt, he had said, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, and then he had quoted Hosea 11. But concerning Nazareth, the formula changes if ever so slightly. Matthew now says that what was spoken by the prophets, plural, might be fulfilled. And then he adds, he shall be called a Nazarene. But the problem is, there's no single prophet that mentions Nazareth, not even one. And there's no place we can turn to in the Old Testament that says he shall be called a Nazarene. And some, in fact, there are some people that believe that modern-day Nazareth, as it was constituted back then, did not even exist during the prophetic years. So what is Matthew doing here? Did he make a mistake? No, of course not. Most Bible scholars believe that Matthew is employing a play on words here when he invokes Nazareth and Nazarene. Matthew's audience is largely Jewish, and a good Jew who'd be well-versed in Hebrew would hear the consonants when they heard the name Nazareth. Nun, Sade, Resh, Netzer. Netzer. And they would hear the word branch. The word branch, Netzer, it shares the same root, no pun intended, with the name Nazareth. Okay, well, where do we see the word branch in the prophets? Well, one such prophecy was one of our Advent readings this morning, wasn't it? Isaiah 11.1 said, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch, there it is, a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. This was a prophecy of messianic hope. See, Isaiah prophesied at a time when the great oak of Israel had been reduced to nothing more than a stump. But here he gives us a picture of one who will spring up from that stump, a shoot, a branch. You know, when Brian and I used to live in Pasadena, we had this wonderful plant outside of our kitchen window, a bougainvillea plant. I think those are native to California, so I don't know if you're familiar with them, but people think they flower, but it, actually their leaves turn different colors, and they're beautiful shades of fuchsia and orange and yellow. This plant was so large that I had to keep it up with a huge trestle. But I did not like this plant very much because it had huge thorns. It was a threat for the kids. And it didn't do what bougainvillea plants are supposed to do. It did not flower. This plant had ugly leaves. It had grown wild. So you know what I did to it. I cut it down, reduced it to a stump. But I imagine you know what happened next, right? Shoots started to grow from that stump. It's really hard to kill bougainvillea plants. New branches were formed, and it grew right back. In fact, it grew larger than ever. Isaiah prophesied that this little shoot would come forth. A branch would grow from the stump of Jesse, and then verse 10 of that chapter, chapter 11 of Isaiah, went on to say that this root of Jesse will stand as a signal for all peoples. 
Of him would the nations inquire. Of him would the nations inquire. Doesn't that sound a lot like the Magi coming from the east and asking, where is he who's born king of the Jews? In another place, Isaiah says, it's too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel who I've held on to, who I've kept. No, I'll make you a light for the Gentiles. A light for the A star for the Gentiles? That you may bring my salvation to the ends of the earth. But Isaiah is not the only prophet who spoke of a branch. Proceeding from this initial prophecy, the concept of the branch is then developed in other prophetic utterances. For instance, in Zechariah, we're shown the high priest, whose name just so happens to be Joshua, Yeshua, right? And he will be crowned a king. God will take a priest and combine that office with a king. And he, Joshua, will branch out from this place and build the temple, the Lord says. God was going to rebuild his temple through the branch. You see, Matthew was indeed correct in saying that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled because of this picture of a root, a branch, a shoot growing out of what was once a glorious oak was a message of hope that the prophets carried to the people on a regular basis. But here's the thing. A root, a shoot, even a branch is not that impressive a sight at first, is it? Isaiah recognized this. And so in Isaiah 53, we read, Who has believed what he heard from us? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. There it is again, right? The concept, at least, of the Netzer. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. As one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Friends, isn't that the case with Jesus when he arrives? Jesus intentionally came out of Nazareth because Nazareth was nowhere and nobody came from there. Remember that when Jesus called his first disciples, one of them, Philip, he went and recruited another disciple, Nathaniel, saying, we found the one that was spoken of by the prophets, even Jesus of Nazareth. But Nathaniel's reply was, what? No. Does anything good come out of Nazareth? Again, once when Jesus was teaching in the temple, some were persuaded and said, this is the prophet, this, this is Moses, this is the one Moses promised. Others said, this is the Christ, this is the son of David. But others remarked, I don't think so. Does the Christ come out of Galilee? Hasn't the scripture said that the Christ must come from Bethlehem, the village of David? Yes, exactly. Jesus did come from Bethlehem. But he readily accepts Jesus of Nazareth as his moniker. In fact, it's not just others who assign that to him. When Jesus appeared to Paul on the road to Damascus, Paul says he identified himself as, I'm Jesus of Nazareth, whom you're persecuting. Likewise, those who followed Jesus accepted the label sect of the Nazarenes, and that was not meant to be a compliment. Nazareth says something about Jesus and his followers 
that we are meant to appreciate. You know, the coming of our Lord is somewhat enigmatic, isn't it? Jesus comes from Bethlehem, but he doesn't call himself the Christ of Bethlehem. He comes up out of Egypt, but he doesn't call himself the Savior from Egypt. Instead, he calls himself Jesus of Nazareth. Of course, it's not that he's not a king and a Savior. In fact, he is the epitome of David and Moses combined into one man, isn't he? But David was a special kind of ruler. David, remember, was a shepherd ruler. And likewise, Jesus is the good shepherd of his people. And in similar fashion to David, Jesus learned suffering before he ascended the throne. And Moses, even though he was like no other man who went before him, who the Lord knew face to face, who the Lord conversed with, who performed these powerful signs and miracles in the presence of Israel, he was said to be the meekest man on the face of the earth. So too, Jesus, who is in very nature God, who displayed the power of God by healing the sick, making the lame to walk, even raising the dead, he took the form of a servant. How mysterious and enigmatic is the coming of our Lord. Even the gifts of the wise men presented to Jesus, they demonstrate this. The gift of gold, that was fitting for a king, wasn't it? The gift of frankincense, pure incense, That was suitable for a god. But the gift of myrrh, that was appropriate for a mortal who would suffer and die. Remember that, in fact, when Jesus hung on the cross, he was offered wine mixed with myrrh to deaden the pain, which he didn't take. And in his burial, myrrh was used to scent his body. A god king who's come to die? Yes, hallelujah. At the hour of his glorification, Jesus said, Unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it does what? It produces much fruit. And so it is with Jesus. He will die. But he will rise again. And when he does, he will branch out and grow and, ex- and, and extend and fill the whole earth with the glory of the knowledge of the Lord. You know, I don't know if the wise men fully understood the comprehensive nature of the one that they were worshiping, but they were certainly wise in rendering him worship. In fact, Herod should have taken a cue from them. Be wise, O kings. Be be warned, O rulers of the earth. Kiss the son. Kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in his way. For you know, the one who was born of Mary, the one born in a manger, in a stable in Bethlehem, who came up out of Egypt and then presented himself out of Nazareth, is also from where? He's from heaven above, isn't he? He's the Lord of lords and King of kings. He's the Alpha and Omega. He's the beginning and the end. And he who has come will come again. He will appear a second time, but not in a humble fashion to bear sins. He will come to judge the nations. Even so, come Lord Jesus. During this Advent season, May we all be found to be resting in the branch. May we be found abiding and remaining and growing in Christ Jesus because blessed are all who take refuge in him. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we we praise you for this season. Um, 
and for sending the one spoken of by the prophets, like the Magi, we bow the knee before Christ Jesus. We worship him. We recognize he is the hopes and fears of all the years. And we acknowledge him as the Christ, the son of David, and as the deliverer that Moses had anticipated. Yet we also worship him as the humble branch who has come to die for us, but then also rise again that we might have life in his name. So help us, we pray, that we would follow in his footsteps to be willing to share in his sufferings that we might also share in his glory. Branch out from this place, Lord Jesus. Build your church. And even as you accomplish that glorious work, be gracious to us. Abide in us as we abide in you, for you are truly the vine and now we are the branches. We share in your nourishing sap because you have graciously grafted us into your body. Hear our prayer, O Lord, and grant us peace. In the name of Jesus, Jesus of Nazareth. Amen.